Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. Today is September 7th, 2018, and my guest today on Fair Talk is Patrick Westoff. Um, Dr. Patrick Westoff is a professor of agricultural and applied economics and director of the Food Agricultural Policy Research Institute at the University of Missouri. Welcome to Fair Talk, Pat. Nice to be with you today. Thank you for the opportunity. Pat, in today's podcast, I want to explore the general question of, is the world agri-food system up to the task of feeding the future? And in many ways, this is uh, an ancient and always an important question. In your article that you've written with your colleague Wyatt Thompson titled Four Indicators That Explain World Grain and Oilseed Market Developments, you suggest that it might be helpful to look back at the last 35 years, that is from 1980 till 2015, to better understand the capacity of this system to meet the needs over the next 35 years to the year 2050. In this article, there's a number of zingers, and I want to start off by having you comment about one of the lines that you write that I think is uh, thought-provoking. And that line is, and I quote, Chinese demand in biofuel production account for the entire net increase in world per capita grain and oilseed consumption since 1980. Let's start there. Yeah, so what we did was we added up all of the 14 major grains and oilseeds that are in the USDA's uh, data set. Uh, both data going back to 1980, divided by the world's population. And when you do that just all by itself, you find that there's been a big increase in per capita consumption since about the year 2002. But when you dig in a little bit further, you find out if you take China out of the mix and take U.S. ethanol production out of the mix, that what's left is basically a, a picture that's very different. In fact, there's almost no increase whatsoever over that period from 1980 to 2015 uh, in the overall consumption per capita of grains and oil seeds by, by the world as a whole. For those of you listening, uh, a link to this paper is provided on the website. And I would note that there's a very interesting figure that develops the points that Pat's just raised, figure two and figure three. There's a graph with and without um, China and U.S. corn ethanol use. And what the first graph shows a relatively flat uh, per capita consumption until around 2002, and then it starts to increase. But when you take China and U.S. corn ethanol out of that picture, basically it looks relatively flat since uh, from 1980 to 2015. So with these two major forces of demand in mind, China and U.S. corn ethanol, Talk to me a little bit about the reasons um, or what's been going on in those two areas. So in the case of China, of course, I think most people know the story there that we've had this massive change in dietary patterns in China. As incomes have increased, people are consuming a lot more meat and dairy products to produce that meat and dairy products. There are a lot more animals out there, a lot more chickens out there. And that means a lot more feed going to those animals and to, to fish, of course, as well. Uh, so that's really, really uh, caused an explosion of overall uh, grain and oil seed consumption in China. On the grain side, for the most part, China has been able to supply that with domestic production. Uh, but on the oil seed side, especially in the case of soybeans, they have not taken that track and instead have become 
not only the largest importer in the world, but the dominant importer in the world of soybeans, accounting for typically more than 60% of all the soybeans that are imported in a given year by all the countries the world put together. Okay, so looking back over the last 35 years, China has clearly played an important role in explaining per capita use of grains and oilseed. Now let's look forward over the next 35 years to the year 2050. Um, do you expect the, the trend uh, to continue with respect to China? I think there's lots of reasons to expect it's going to slow at least eventually. Um, you know, China's per capita consumption of meat and fish have obviously been expanding rapidly and can't keep expanding at the current pace forever unless we think people in China just like to eat meat and fish more than anybody else in the world. Uh, so we, you know, we would expect the eventually we're going to see a slowdown in the growth of meat and fish consumption, and therefore probably a slowdown in the consumption of grains and oil seeds to produce that, uh, those animal products. Uh, one big question mark that I confess is a really, really important one is whether or not we can trust the data that we're looking at. Um, the data from USDA, the data from Chinese sources suggest that per capita availabilities of meat and fish are, are not horribly different in China today than they are in many of the rich countries of the world. Uh, many people are skeptical of that and think that probably the true levels of consumption aren't quite that high just yet. So there's probably still some further room for growth. Uh, but that, that growth potential, even in that case, is not infinite. At some point, we're going to have to have a slowdown in the growth pattern there. Okay, now I want to turn to the other very important um, driver of demand that you mentioned, uh, U.S. corn ethanol use. In previous conversations in this context, you and I have talked about the important role of policy and oil prices. Let's start again. Let's look back at what's happened over the last 35 years, or in your paper from, 2015, from 1980 to 2015, and think about what might happen uh, between now and 2050. Sure. We, we saw incredibly rapid growth in U.S. consumption of, of maize, corn to make uh, ethanol between 2005 and 2010. Uh, you know, part of it was just the, the explosion of ethanol plants that went up during that period of time, a renewable fuel standard that uh, required the use of more biofuels in, in the nation's fuel supply, and then again, very supportive uh, 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 prices on the oil side of the, of the picture as well, where high petroleum prices translate to high gasoline prices, and a strong incentive for, for uh, people to blend more uh, ethanol into the fuel mix in this country. Uh, that has largely, you know, come to an end now. We, we've had relatively little growth in uh, domestic consumption of, of ethanol in the United States the last several years now. Uh, current policies, at least as I talked to you today, are, are not as supportive as they were a couple of years ago to that domestic consumption of ethanol. And so unless there's a policy change or unless oil prices change dramatically, we wouldn't expect there to be a huge increase in domestic consumption of ethanol in the United States going forward. There is obviously continued growth in biofuel consumption in many other countries. Um, the growth in biodiesel in Europe was dramatic and important for world vegetable oil markets. Uh, we've also seen mandates in, in Canada, and mandates in uh, some Southeast Asian countries and a number of other places around the world, uh, Argentina, to use biodiesel and ethanol in fuel mixes in those countries as well. So I wouldn't say we won't have any further growth in biofuel production. But at least as we look kind of around the world right now, certainly the U.S. is no longer a major source of growth in that uh, category. And it doesn't appear to me there's not many other countries where we're seeing really massive growth uh, uh, happening overnight. Here again, China is yet another question mark. Uh, China announced a couple of years ago intentions that they wanted to 
uh, moved to 10% ethanol blends nationwide. If they had really uh, been in, been serious about that, and if they are proved, proved to be very serious about that, that would be a very important uh, development because that would mean tens of millions of tons of additional grain or other uh, feedstocks being used to produce ethanol in, Ch in China or elsewhere. Um, many of us are skeptical of whether that's really going to happen. The actual actions on the ground, so far as we speak at least, have not uh, been consistent with that type of expansion. As you think about the longer run, you know, I suppose there's, there's lots of question marks. One is, uh, you know, what is the future of oil prices? Um, and you, we see how much markets can change from day to day, let alone from year to year and decade to decade on petroleum markets. At the kind of petroleum markets we have in, in early September of 2018, uh, prices are not high enough in those global markets to justify a lot of uh, discretionary blending of ethanol into fuel supplies. So for the most part, it takes mandates to, to get the, the, that used to occur. Uh, if we were to have much higher oil prices than we have at this time, you know, then that kind of discretionary blending becomes much more possible. But if we're really talking about 2050, you know, probably the real question mark for the long run is, are we still going to continue to use internal combustion engines that run on, you know, on petroleum-based fuels? Uh, or are we going to shift to more to other types of vehicles, be the electric vehicles or whatever, that are not as reliant on, on petroleum-based fuels? And do you have any thoughts on that? I think the direction is probably clear that yes, we are probably going to move that direction, but just how fast uh, is, is a very big question mark. Uh, and it, you know, it's going to depend on relative prices of petroleum and other products, other types of energy sources, and of course, it's going to depend on policy. Okay, I, I know that you uh, and your co-author are careful in your paper not to suggest that you have a crystal ball, but it would, be, would it be a fair assessment of what we've just discussed to, to suggest that you do not expect the growth in demand that we attribute to China and U.S. ethanol that has occurred over the last 35 years, that you expect it to be somewhat lower over the next 35 years going to the year 2050. Yeah, I think that's right. Where Again, there may still be some growth both in Chinese consumption and in biofuel production, but I don't expect it to be at the kind of pace of experience for the last uh, 15 years in particular. One of the the, the really interesting discussion points in your article is about population growth. So again, we'll, we'll start off by looking back. If we look back from 1980 to 2015, what have you noted about population growth over that period of time? So over the last uh, 35, between 80 and 2015, the world's population increased by 63%. Uh, so the, the rate of population growth has been declining for, for a long time. Uh, in terms of percentage uh, growth per year. But we've had relatively linear growth if you just talk about how many additional people were adding the world's population each year. It's been roughly 80 million people out of the world's population each year for about the last 20 years now. As we go forward, uh, most of the projections I've seen from the United Nations, from the U.S. Census Bureau, and from a variety of other sources suggest that the uh, rate of population growth will definitely continue to decline in, pr in proportional terms. And it will probably shortly start to decline even in absolute terms. So that while we're not going to be declining world population in total, we are going to have fewer new people being out of the world's population each year. By the, year, by the time we get to 2050, you know, expectations are that the current rate of growth of 1.1% roughly will have declined to roughly half a percent per year, for example. One of the really interesting things that comes out in your paper is that your estimates of population growth rates are essentially the same as your estimates of the growth rate and yield. Is that right? Yeah, it is pretty remarkable. If you look back over the, again, the 35-year period, 
uh, the overall increase in population over that period and the overall increase in yields over that period for all the grains and oil seeds combined turns out to be almost identical. Uh, so if we were, had just been simply trying to maintain per capita uh, calorie availability at the same level we had in 1980, we could have done so with roughly uh, the same amount of area that was devoted to crop production back in 1980. It was only because of increase in per capita consumption we've talked about already that we've had to have had an increase in the total area used for crop production. Yes, I think, I think that's an important point. I'd like to hit it again. So population growth rates and yield increases have roughly been the same, so they've essentially offset each other. So we've seen per capita use of grains and oil seeds increase since 2002. Where has that come from? How has that been achieved? We did have a big increase in the area harvested, uh, and it's, just, it's frankly very remarkable how big the increase was since, since 2002. You know, we added more than 100 million hectares of land uh, of area harvested, say, to the world's uh, uh, grain and oil seed production over that period of time. That's not all addition of physical land. It's also counting uh, additional double cropping and triple cropping that occurs in some parts of the world. So when you harvest the same field twice in a year, it counts twice in these data. But even if you were to correct for that, you find that we have indeed expanded the overall use of land uh, globally in agriculture by quite a bit over that, over the last uh, 15 years in particular. Okay, so in quick summary, we've identified the four indicators that you discuss in your paper, growth in crop yields and growth in population, and those have essentially offset each other with respect to uh, consumption of grain and oil seeds. Uh, the two major drivers, particularly since 2002, have been Chinese demand and biofuel production, and you suggest that the next 35 years may not increase at the same rate as the previous 35 years. So bringing that all together, at least from, from my perspective, it's a rosier picture uh, than sometimes you hear about the world's uh, grain and oilseed market's capacity to address the needs of the population that we will encounter in 2050. But of course, there are other concerns. So let's discuss that. There are many things to be concerned about, but, but certainly you could, it's not difficult to tell a story where meeting the future global uh, uh, food demands may not be quite as hard as some people have suggested. Uh, again, I don't want to pretend ever this is not an important and difficult challenge. Of course it is. But if we were, if we were able to continue past trends on yield growth, and that's a very important if, uh, just linear growth in, in yields across time and have the population slow as is currently anticipated, so that over the next 35 years, instead of adding 63% to the world's population, as we did over the last 35 years, over the next 35, maybe only adding about 29 or 30% to the world's population, you know, this now doesn't look like quite such an impossible task. Uh, you know, global production of grains and oil seeds increased by 86% between 1980 and 2015. If the world's population increases by 29%, let's say, and if per capita consumption were to increase by another 14% on top of the 14% by which it increased between 1980 and 2015, uh, that would mean that we'd we need roughly a 47% increase in grain and oil seed uh, production to, to you know, satisfy that level of world consumption. And now obviously the, the true growth in per capita consumption is unknown as is the, the growth in uh, the world's population. Uh, but it does seem very likely to me, at least, that, the, that the, the amount of growth we need in front of us is less than the amount of growth that we've already gone through over the last 30 to 40 years. Uh, doesn't mean it's easy, 
That probably means it's not quite as impossible as uh, some people might have feared. Now this is of course assuming we can continue the growth in yields that we have seen. There are many severe concerns about that. Uh, you know, some very good uh, scientists have suggested that uh, you know, we're closing the yield gaps in many parts of the world, that the, the potential for increasing yields isn't what it once was. And to the extent that is true, you know, that may make it more difficult for yields to grow as rapidly in the future as they have in the recent past. But as a counter that, I would, would note that you know, from the period from 2013 through 2017, we appear to have had five straight years where the, the global average yield for grains and oil seeds was at or above the long-term trend. Uh, a string that we haven't had, frankly, is for the entire period I've looked at you know, over the previous 35 years. So that's, you know, that's, that's one note that at least in the near term we seem to be doing uh, as well or better than, than we might have thought. Um, so again, there, there's lots of questions about what the future might hold. Uh, and I wouldn't want to pretend that this is uh, going to be easy. Uh, but it's also not an impossible task either, provided we don't have unpleasant surprises in front of us. What are your sense? Uh, what is your sense about the potential effect of climate change on um, these yield projections? Yeah, and that, that's certainly one of the very important uh, uh, wild cards here. You know, we so far have been talking strictly at the global level about things, and that's probably appropriate for a big picture view. But maybe it's worth saying a few words about a, a one particular regional role where food security is obviously still a very major concern today, and that's Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa has, has multiple challenges, uh, one of which is that its population growth is, is uh, not slowing as much as some other regions of the world have been slowing. In fact, uh, that's the one regional world that is, is probably going to see larger absolute increases year over year in population uh, growth in, in the next several years as they had in the recent past. So more miles of feed there is, is always a challenge. Yields have been below the global average by quite a bit, and we haven't seen the sort of dynamic on yield growth, at least in some countries in Africa, uh, that would, would make it possible for African countries to, to supply their, their domestic consumption needs uh, through internal production. Uh, so as we look forward, you know, there's a lot that can be done to, to boost that rate of, of, of product productivity in, in African countries. But climate change, by many models' uh, expectations, are, is, may hit sub-Saharan African countries harder than many other parts of the world. And so what is already a challenging situation could be even a bigger challenge uh, when climate change uh, comes to bear. Uh, again, uh, different climate models say different things about other parts of the world. You know, some would suggest that, you know, Canada might actually, you know, parts of Canada might actually fare reasonably well in the climate change in terms of agricultural productivity. Uh, but there are certainly some other parts of the world, like Sub-Saharan Africa, that appear to be uh, in very serious danger going forward. Are there any, when, when you think about the areas that might be uh, hit the hardest or the most challenged uh, in terms of matching population growth with uh, yield growth, do you see any important policies or ways of addressing what are, what are the points of leverage for policymakers? Well, yeah, again, for some of these countries, it will obviously be a, a very difficult to see how they can possibly satisfy local consumption needs just with, with local production only. Uh, if you think of a country like Nigeria that has already a very large population, but that is also growing very, very rapidly, you know, by some, uh, some estimates from the United Nations I've seen, you know, it could become, you know, perhaps the second or third largest country in the world by population in the not terribly distant future. 
by if current growth rates continue. Nigeria is a big country, but not that big. And to expect that even if they were to have a, you know, some major uh, positive elements in productivity, that they're going to be able to uh, satisfy local consumption needs just with local production could be very difficult. So for a country like Nigeria, you, you, you probably want to think in terms of what can they do to make sure they have an economy that is generating enough income for people that that country can actually afford to, to, to do the sort of food imports that might prove to be necessary at some point in the future. You know, you, you, food security obviously does depend on both supply and demand, but a country doesn't have to have its own supply necessarily to meet the domestic demand. You know, if you, uh, the obvious case would be uh, city-states like Singapore, for example, where one would not think of food security being a major problem in Singapore, even though it has, you know, very, very little uh, production that occurs within that small country. I think that's such a, an important point, and it's emphasized in your paper over and over again that particularly in the short term, variations in crop production are very dependent on the weather. And... Um, in a sense, so is food security for any country that depends largely on own production. And so trust trade relationships between countries are so important for uh, providing food security. Yeah, that's really true. Uh, we, we have a project that we've been working on for some time now in, in South Africa that now includes partners in a number of other countries in the region as well. And one thing we've, we've been looking at has been the trade in, in, in Southern Africa and Eastern Africa in maize, corn. Uh, which is the basic staple food in many of these countries. Um, there's been some recent weather events, for example, that have resulted in short supplies in particular countries in the region as a whole. Uh, though that has resulted in big gyrations in, in maize prices across the con that part of the continent and with very different experiences in different countries. Uh, you know, keeping a more open trading regime has benefits to, to the uh, uh, region as a whole, even though there can sometimes be incentives for particular countries to want to, to uh, re, re, you know, restrict trade uh, when, when a problem strikes. So Zambia has been a prime example of that, where Zambia has now become a maize exporter in most years. Uh, but if there's a, uh, something that causes prices to run up within Zambia, they have at times imposed export controls that may help uh, restrain domestic maize prices in Zambia. But with the effect of raising prices in Zimbabwe, uh, the Congo, and other countries in the region. So just a reminder that, you know, things aren't very intertwined. Um, and dealing with a weather shock is a lot easier if, if you don't think you have to deal only with domestic supplies to do so. I'd like to end this podcast with a discussion of, of prices. And you note in your paper that this is a very important dimension to consider when thinking about the dynamic questions uh, that we've been asking about with respect to food supply and food demand. And I'll just quote your paper and let you speak to this issue. Let's quote, you write, People sometimes ask if agriculture can meet future demand. This question is misguided. The quantity that consumers buy will have to be no more than the quantity that the sector produces. Over time, there is no way to sustain consumption above production. Weather and other shocks will cause annual volatility in crop prices, and stocks can mitigate these impacts. Focusing on the long term, however, attention is better focused on the price level necessary to ration demand and to coax additional supplies. End of quote. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's an important point to make that 
you know, we, we don't trade much with Mars or Venus, you know, so pretty much our food has to be produced on this planet. And sure, in a given year, you can draw down stocks and you can do things like that to, to smooth things out a bit from one year to the next. But in the long run, you got to produce it to be able to consume it. And uh, so the real question is whether or not uh, it's going to be available to people at a price that they can afford. Uh, if if uh, food prices are constant or declining, it's a lot easier to, uh, to help uh, even the poorest part of the world's population get the food they need to survive and to thrive. But if food prices are rising in, in real terms, uh, it's a heck of a lot more of a challenge. So while this has mixed effects on different sorts, different parts of the population, if you're a, a, a relatively low income farmer, but who sells at least some of your, of your surplus in a given year, you don't like low food prices because low food prices probably mean lower income for you. Uh, but for the growing share of the world's population lives in urban areas, uh, you know, a, a lower food price in, in retail markets is going to make it easier for families to, to achieve the kind of food security they want. So with respect to food prices, what did you observe over the past 35 years, and what are your thoughts about uh, food prices uh, for the next 35 years? Yeah, I mean, I mean, prices obviously matter. And so when we have the kind of high prices we've had between 2007 and about 2013 or so, uh, that is one of the many reasons why we have expanded global area use for crop production as much as we have. It provided incentive for people to make investments in, in land that might otherwise been judged not to be worth trying to produce crops on. It resulted in major investments by seed companies, by other people involved in, in agribusiness to try to, to increase the, the, the possible level of yields that were possible out there. Uh, and those investments are still you know, paying dividends even today. Uh, but now with the lower prices we've had since about 2014, you can probably expect there's, there's less investment that has been occurring uh, than would have otherwise occurred in those sorts of activities. Not surprisingly, if you look at the, the global area chart uh, that we mentioned earlier, again, much of that growth occurred between about 2002 and about 2013 or so. Since about 2013, we have seen much less change in the global areas for crop production. So again, some some sign that uh, there is indeed some price responsiveness out there. It's not just a matter of supplies fall from the heavens. It's rather that people make investments that have a lot to do with the supplies beyond the, the effects of weather and other things we can't control uh, might have. So as we think about the future, again, you know, if you have regimes that allow uh, you know, prices to give us signals to both producers and consumers so they can act appropriately, uh, you know, that makes it easier to, to keep things uh, going on an even keel. One of the many reasons why we have the kind of volatility we have in many agricultural markets is precisely because policies and other things sometimes may get in the way and make it tough for uh, markets to fully uh, respond to, you know, to the sorts of incentives that, uh, that, uh, that are supposed to be out there. Well, I'm hopeful in 2050, when we look back at the last 35 years, we'll look back at a system that's been able to enhance food security around the world. And that's going to require the continual effort of people like yourselves. So thank you for your efforts and thanks for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining us at Fair Talk. 
We hope you will continue to check our website for updates and the latest podcasts.